welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who has two sections on my bookshelf. Religion and not religion. It's true. It's sort of religion and engineering. I mean, my novels are also on that shelf. Sure, but some of the novels are also religious. Not really. I mean, or I guess most of them are not novels. I read a lot of nonfiction. It's true. It's like religion, assorted nonfiction, and also Shakespeare. Yeah. And then there's like a chunk of engineering and an assortment of other novels. Yeah. Great. There's no there's no categorizing further the, the not religion section. It's all, it's a jumble. Sure. And also I think you need a new religion-specific bookshelf because the school books are starting to take over this room. I, yes, I have a lot of books. I need to get rid of some old ones, I think. Sure. So many new books for you to read. It's so, so exciting. You know, exciting is one word. <laughs> I just know that you like to read. So, like, having a bunch of books about topics that you are probably reasonably interested in, uh, that you're being encouraged to read, seems like maybe the most fun part of going to school so far. One of my classes has 19 books. That's terrifying. <laughs> So, we'll see how that goes. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, well, we're not talking about grad school today, so what are we talking about, Brian? This week, we're going to talk about liturgical colors. Ooh, I like this. Yeah, so this came up when we talked about the lectionary. Mm-hmm. Because we mentioned some in that there are different seasons in the festival part of the calendar, yep. and there are different colors associated with them. Also... If you follow us on Facebook, you'll notice that the cover photo changes. Fairly regularly. Yeah. Shannon has uh, calendar reminders to tell her when to do that because it is based on the liturgical calendar. Yep. And today is a red day. As of the day we're recording, it is a red day, which means it is a martyr's feast day. Do you know um, who it is? Uh, I could look. <laughs> um, it is definitely, the, but it's the picture of me brandishing a knife at you is the cover photo for Martyr's Day. Great, excellent, yes. You are the martyr and not me. Um, <laughs> well, you know, you're you're uh, at least in the short term sense winning. Sure. You're the one with the knife. Sure. <laughs> well, and we were talking about liturgical colors not that long ago because I, being the keeper of the Facebook calendar, knew that someday was a green day in liturgical colors and I walked by a church as it was letting out and the um, priest was wearing green robes and my brain like made this connection and I told Brian about it because I was very excited and this is what this show has done to me is I get excited when I make strange deductions all by myself about religion. It's working guys. (laughs) Whatever it is, it's totally working. (laughs) The long game evangelization. (laughs) This is the longest game evangelization that has ever happened considering I haven't gone to church. (laughs) One of these days. Someday. (laughs) Okay, but I'm really excited to find out how liturgical colors came to be and how they work and all the things. So where are we starting? So we'll start with the writings of Pope Benedict XIV. He was writing in the 18th century, but he was writing about the past. Okay. So according to him, the only color vestments used in the church until the 4th century were white. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Simple. Dyes are expensive. We're a new religion. Also, white was seen as symbolic of the resurrection. Cool. That makes sense. This makes sense because white garments are referenced multiple times in the book of Revelation. For example, yet 
You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And another one. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. That's a lot of people in white robes. So lots of white robes. Sure. The other big event that involves white clothing in the New Testament is the Transfiguration, which is a story that's included in the three synoptic gospels. Okay. Do you remember which ones those are? Um, <laughs> Luke. Uh-huh. Mark. Uh-huh. And the one that's not John. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> it's Matthew. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, there are four that I can remember, and the synoptic ones are the ones that don't include John, but I'm missing a name. <laughs> Yes. Great. Uh, so this story is in those. And basically, Jesus was up on a mountain with a few of his disciples. And suddenly he changed. And according to the story in Matthew, it says, There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Great. So it was like God bleach. Yeah. It was a, Just it like... was a Tide commercial. <laughs> yes. He got Tide commercial. <laughs> uh, throwback to that ad campaign from... Like, over a year ago at this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wild. I just think that now, in today's day and age, where, like, everyone wears colors, a large group of people in all white robes would be terrifying. A little culty, yeah. A little culty. Like, a large gathering of people in all white robes is like, woof, that's a lot. That's fair. Mm-hmm. It's like a Catholic high school graduations. Cults. I Is that a thing? A lot of... Religious schools, at least where I went to school, the girls all had to wear white dresses on graduation. They didn't do, like, robes. Sure. I know, um, oh shoot, what's that? There's a all-women's college on the East Coast. I know they're, they do in, uh, Mount Holyoke. Great. Mount Holyoke does, um, graduation. Everyone wears white. Yeah. And so you don't have to buy a robe or anything, but you do have to provide your own white dress. Yeah. Um, and then they have, like, class colors, and they all wear, like, scarves in their class colors. That's adorable. Yeah. But still, so, large groups of people all wearing white, something about it's freaky. Sure. Can't explain it. Well, there's a lot of kind of creepy things in Revelation. So the people standing around wearing white and waving palm branches was probably the least freaky thing going on, to sure. be fair. From the few things that have been alluded to me about Revelation, uh, I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone's wearing white. And in the 4th century is the first time we have record of another color being introduced. Okay. We have a record of Constantine giving Bishop Marcarius of Jerusalem a sacred robe fashioned with golden threads for use at baptisms. Cool. Now he's got a baptism robe. Yeah, fancy. Very fancy. And when I say everyone, I'm generally referring to the people leading the services who are wearing any kind of vestments. I'm not sure. referring to, like, it's not the, the whole crowd of Christians is all yeah. dressed this way. Sure. Unless explicitly stated, like, a group of people all in white robes waving palms, it's probably the people coming to church are wearing whatever they wear. Right. But the vestments start to get more different now. Yeah. So, yeah, fourth century, we get a little gold. Cool. And it really didn't standardize much more than that for several centuries after that. Up through about the 9th century, the rule was just kind of wear your fanciest vestment 
for important holy days like Christmas and Easter, and it didn't matter what color it was. It was just the fanciest. Sure. Wear your nicest, newest, cleanest one when the most people are coming to church. And wear your, like, average ones in the, like, dead of winter when less people are coming to church and it's cold and sad. I don't Probably less a problem they have in the desert, but... I don't know that it was, uh... Well, I mean, Christmas would be sure. cold. But... but what's the, like, quietest time of year in church? Like summer. When... Summer is when you get lowest attendance? Yeah. I mean, but that's... I don't think that would apply to the 4th century church. I think people were pretty entrenched in it at that point in time sure if, it, like you, if, if you were doing it you were doing it sure that's totally reasonable i um, believe that i don't think we had cnas as uh as the deacons called them when i was little christmas and easters mm-hmm. or i've heard creasters ah, the there you other go. term for them but anyway we're in our fancy colors for christmas and easter because a big important day yeah for sure originally the church even used white for funerals uh, in part because the focus was on the resurrection. And the idea of black as a color for mourning was not a Christian idea at all. Interesting. Black was the traditional pagan color for mourning. And it was only adopted by Christians as the religion spread north in the early Middle Ages. And they were like, we're, not, we're not, never going to get behind white uh, funerals. It's never going to happen. Yeah, and that's what the the church did pretty often as it spread into new places. It adopted certain aspects of the culture of the place they went to to make it more palatable to the existing populations, and they were more likely to adopt it. Yeah, and there you go. Black yeah. at funerals. Yeah, and it wasn't even until about the 12th century that we first get a listing of formal colors. Approaching that point, we start to get people deciding like, okay, I'm more often going to wear this color during this time. And it did start to like group. Sure. But we don't get it documented until the 12th century when it was recorded by Pope Innocent III in his treatise De Sacro Alteris Mysterio. Ooh. I don't, I couldn't, I, don't know. I couldn't find a translation. I don't know Latin. Something about mysterious sacraments, I think. <laughs> Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah, something, something. Mysterious sacraments. Um, and he wrote it before his election as Pope, when he was still Lothar of Signy. Lothar. That's Which, adorable. I just like the name Lothar. I, I, at some point, we'll have to do the Pope name thing and like talk about why they take names. But also, like, why couldn't he be Pope Lothar? That would have been awesome. I don't know. I think it would have been a pretty badass Pope name. It is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But... He unfortunately was not. He was just innocent. Innocent. Was he the first innocent? No, he was third. Okay. the third. There's a lot of those later. There are a lot. And his list was not a prescribed list of colors. It was just observations, and it included variations among different places. So it was like, I've noticed that generally people wear white around here, but in this area, sometimes they wear gold, and sometimes these people wear green and whatever. Yeah. Cool. So here is his listing. He says that white is the color of purity and it is used on these days. Feasts of confessors, virgins, and angels. Sure. Christmas and the birth of John the Baptist. Sure. Epiphany, because of the brightness of the stars that led the wise men. Cool. Presentation of the Lord as an indication of the purity of Mary, who bore the light that enlightens the Gentiles. What day is that? Presentation of the Lord, it's uh, January 8th, I think. Okay, is that Three Kings Day? Uh, I think, I think it is, I'm, someone's, I'm, I'm probably, I'm going to end up being wrong in this and someone's going to yell at me. Um, Tweet at us, you know who you are. But I think it's like, 
I think that's the day that is like three different things all at once. Sure, and one of them because is... it's also. I think that one is like also the feast of the Holy Family, and I think it's like all of those things. Okay, whatever that day is, January sixth or eighth or whatever. I believe so. Cool. So that's a day where you wear white. Yeah. So white on that day, Holy Thursday, because of the preparation of chrism, which serves the purification of souls, and because of the gospel of foot washing. Also known as Maundy Thursday. See our episode about that. Yep. This is true. Mm -hmm. During Easter, as an indication of the white robe worn by the angel who was witness to the resurrection. Sure. Ascension, as indication of the white clouds on which Christ ascended. Cool. And dedication of a church, because the church, like a pure virgin, is wed to Christ. Okay. Sharp. Sure. (laughs) At the ordination of a bishop, the candidate for ordination always wore white, while everything else in the church was decorated with the color that was part of the calendar that day. Sure. For the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, he suggests white because it is not a feast of passion, but rather concerns the finding or exaltation of the cross, but he said that some people use red instead. Okay. White is also used at the Feast of Conversion of Paul the Apostle and the Chair of Peter, and it's used on All Saints Day in the Roman Church. Cool. Red refers to poured blood and the fire of the Holy Spirit. Yep. And it's used on these days. Feast of Apostles and Martyrs. Yep. Which we know because of the blood which they poured out for Christ. Sure. And then, like I said before, in some places during the Exaltation of the Cross, during Pentecost, because the Spirit came down on upon the Apostles in the form of tongues of fire. Yep. We have our own special Pentecost picture, if you had caught it. It was really good. It's, yeah. I often wish we could bring it back, but it is only really appropriate for one day a year. One day a year. Like my friend who has a Good Friday tie. Only appropriate one day a year. Not even really then. Fair. My my dad has like themed and colored ties for many parts of the year. He has a whole week of St. Patrick's Day ties. Oh, wow. So, you know, if you want to talk about specific ties, (laughs) that's a thing. Um, yeah, I do not own any niche ties, and that's fine with me. Do you not own any sports team ties? No, that's tacky. Okay. <laughs> well, then. It is. I don't know. I like a themed tie. <laughs> polos are fine because everybody agrees that polos are a little goofy anyway. Sure. Brian is currently wearing a polo with a sports team on it. I will not say which one it is to protect the innocent. No, it's the Cleveland Browns. Go Browns. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Did you guys know Brian's from Ohio? Because <laughs> Brian's from Ohio. <laughs> but anyway. Okay, we're back. So, Pentecost, Memorial of the Beheading of John the Baptist, for obvious reasons. Yep. The Feasts of Virgins, who are also martyrs, because martyrdom is a sign of complete love. Okay, but also martyrs. We already covered it. Yeah, I... This is repetitive now. <sighs> Whatever. And it's also used on All Saints Day by many people because of the complete love thing. Sure. But... Again, he repeats, Rome uses white. Okay. Black is used on days of mourning and days of penitence. Sure. So Advent up mm-hmm. until Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. It's from the Septuagesima. Say that again. I don't know that I can. The pre-Lent. Okay. Until Holy Saturday. And it's used on the Feast of the Holy Innocents. But he admits there is not agreement on this. Some emphasize the morning and use black, while others lift up the marjoram and prefer red. Innocent himself 
goes for red. I think we use red. I think we did during pre-Lent this year, at least. Unless this has changed since then. We wouldn't use red for Lent. No. But whatever that pre-Lent thing that you can't pronounce. No, this is only the Feast of the Holy Innocents oh, okay. for the dispute between red and black. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Separate bullet point. Cool. Purple is not explained in this listing. Um, he just states that it can replace black, especially on the fourth Sunday of Lent, because of the joy indicated by the golden rose, which the Pope blesses on this Sunday as a badge of honor. And it's like given to churches. Oh, cool. Yeah. So a little bit later in the mid-13th century, Durandris of Mend gives an explanation of purple. He says that purple is gloomy, as if drenched with blood. Okay. And then, like, another author note from my source on that was, due to dyeing techniques at the time, purple looked different than we think it looks now. Sure. (laughs) Their purple was not our purple. I guess. Which I just thought was funny. Another theory about how purple ended up as one of the colors is also relating to dyeing practices at the time. Mm -hmm. The way black fabric was made was using either purple or blue dye, and you just kept dyeing the fabric again and again, and it got darker and darker until it approached black. Sure. So over time, vestments would fade, and so they would become more like the color which they were dyed with, either purple or blue. And so eventually, purple just became the customary color for Lent and Advent because people were using old vestments. There you go. It's very thrifty. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was expensive. Yeah, I mean, in purple dye especially, it was not cheap. Yeah, because you had to, like, get it out of those little snails. Yeah, little snails. (laughs) We're we're making hand movements on, like, we're, like, it's like milking a snail is what we're doing. (laughs) I was, like, squeezing little things with my fingers. (laughs) Okay, but enough. Just so you could all be here for that moment. (laughs) Okay. Green is basically a compromise color (laughs) that falls between black, white, and red. Okay. And therefore, it's used on general days that are not feasts. Sure. We need a filler color, and green seemed as unoffensive as it could get. That is basically his reasoning. Cool. Uh, Saffron yellow can replace green, according to the opinion of some, and it can also be used on feasts of confessors. Okay. This list... Also, saffron yellow was very specific. Not just any yellow. Must be saffron yellow. Please pick the most expensive, fanciest yellow. I don't know. Apparently. Wild. I mean, it didn't get used very much, so I guess it would stay nice, unlike your black. Sure. (laughs) This perspective came mostly from Rome, which makes sense. Yep. Coming from Innocent. But there were differences in other regions. Gold and silver could be used at Easter and Christmas in place of white. Okay. Rose could be used on the third Sunday of Advent, or that fourth Sunday of Lent, because it's like a hope in the midst of the, the waiting. That makes sense. Blue could be used on some feasts of the Blessed Prophet Mary, which is what I'm calling her now. Thank you, Twitter. I like Um, it. (laughs) We're keeping it. That was mostly in Spain, though. Okay. It was a little different in England. A lot of the parishes in England could only afford two colors, so they would go with red, white, or gold, and that would be for all of their feast days. Okay. And then for non-feast days or penitential days, they would use either green, blue, brown, or gray. Sure. It was a little more similar to Rome in the wealthier churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, The list for the English wealthy churches was red was used on all Sundays, except in Lent and during Easter. And it was also used for the blessing of the ashes on Ash Wednesdays, 
for like Holy Week, mm-hmm. for the Feast of Apostles, Martyrs, and Evangelists. Okay. White was used for all of Easter until Pentecost, Feast of Blessed Prophet Mary, Feast of John the Evangelist, Feast of St. Michael the Archangel, and for the anniversary of the church's dedication. Okay. Green or brown, gray, or blue in some places mm-hmm. was used on non-feast days, yellow, Feast of Confessors, black for Requiem Masses and Offices of the Dead. They also had a thing called the Lenten Array, which was unbleached linen embellished with black and oxblood red. And this was used during Advent and Lent, but in other places, brown, green, and purple were used instead of that Lenten Array. Sure. And in some places, indigo was used during Advent. Okay. This set of English colors is often called Sarum usage. Okay. Because it was the practice of the medieval diocese of Salisbury in southern England. And in Latin, Sarum refers to Salisbury. There we go. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. But again, this was all just kind of observations that communities had collectively decided on. There was nothing telling them that this is what you had to do. Yeah, it hadn't been codified in any sort of specific way. Right. And we don't get that until after the Council of Trent, when the list was published in the Roman Missal in 1570. Okay. And the official colors included in this list were only white, red, purple, and green. And then 30 years later, in about 1600, rose was added. There you go. So these liturgical colors, they stayed the same until the Second Vatican Council. There we go. So jumping way ahead. Yeah, that was what, the late 60s, early 70s? Mm-hmm. This new list was published in the Missal in 1970. Okay. And the 1970 list was white for Easter and Christmas, Feasts of the Lord, Saints Who Are Not Martyrs, Feasts of the Blessed Prophet Mary, and Feasts of Angels. Okay. Red was for Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Pentecost, Exaltation of the Cross, and Feasts of Apostles and Martyrs. Purple for Advent and Lent, and as an alternative to Black in Masses for the Dead. Sure. Rose on Third Sunday of Advent and Fourth Sunday of Lent, Mm -hmm. as an alternative to Purple. And green for ordinary time. There you go. During the Protestant Reformation, Mm -hmm. all of these ornate vestments was seen as distracting from God. Sure. So many groups did away with them entirely. Okay. Anglicans kind of went back and forth on the subject, depending on how Catholic the country was at any given moment. Sure. (laughs) But today they follow pretty much the same pattern as the Roman Catholic Church, but sometimes... Certain Anglican or Episcopal churches will go to more of that sarum usage. Sure. Adding in some blue and some of the other things. Yeah, particularly the blue is pretty popular. Cool. As opposed to purple during Lent. Mm-hmm. The Orthodox Church, pretty varied. There's some parts of it follow different color schemes. Some don't really follow color schemes at all. It would honestly be another whole episode to really dig into orthodox liturgical colors so sure we didn't really get into that in this episode Mm -hmm. and i wanted to end on a really interesting note about black versus white vestments from a book i read recently sure the book is it's by lenny duncan it's called dear church a love letter from a black preacher to the whitest denomination in the u.s 
Interesting. Any guesses? The whitest denomination in the U.S. Somewhere in Minnesota? No, denomination. Oh. Not location. Location. Denomination. Is it Episcopal? It's not. And we keep joking that we're all shocked it's not us. Who is it? (laughs) It is the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Okay. Which Lenny Duncan is a part of. There you go. So from his book, I cobbled together a couple of quotes just to get this a little bit shorter. Mm -hmm. But he says, During my first year of seminary, I noticed that all of the robes available for seminary assistants during weekly worship were white. Pure, crisp white with hoods. I perceived those white hooded robes as an existential threat against my personhood. So now I wear a black cassock when I lead worship. Because whiteness does not equal holiness, and blackness does not equal brokenness or self-denial. Black is holy. Beautiful. Yeah. And so I just wanted to bring that up, that we we have these symbolic colors, but we have to be aware in a modern context of how they can make people feel. Mm-hmm. For sure. Which is not something that I'd ever considered before this book. So that was yeah. very interesting to me. Lovely. Thank you for sharing, Brian. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back for some fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And now it is time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint, and she has to guess what they are the patron of. I'm ready. We looked up a saint on the break just to figure out whose martyrdom day it was, but I suspect that is not the saint we're talking about. It is not. Great. That would have been too convenient. That would have been wild. But also would have made the fact that I could tell you a little bit about the saint a little less impressive. Sure. Yeah, I named the saint and Brian was like, oh yeah, I know who that person is. I mean, so it was short deviation here. It was uh, Maximilian Kolb, who was a pretty famous martyr uh, in World War II. Sure. <laughs> but like of all the days and all the martyrs, it happened to be one that Brian was like, oh yeah. I know this person. We're good. Saints. Saints are fun. It's true. Saints are fun. (laughs) What saint are we talking about this week? I want to learn about a new saint. This week, we are talking about Jean-Baptiste de La Salle. Okay. Jean was born in Reims in France on April 30th, 1651, to a noble family. He was the oldest of 10 children, and he began training for religious life at the age of 11. That's when he got that haircut where they cut the top of your head off. Oh, yes. uh, A tonsure. There you go. Yeah. That's what it's called. And by 16, he was canon of the local cathedral. Wow. He's like one of those kids who skipped a bunch of grades and ends up in college as like a teenager. Yeah. Did a pretty good job. Yeah. But unfortunately, his studies were interrupted when his parents died and he had to return home to care for his younger siblings. Though he was eventually able to complete his religious studies, and he was ordained a priest at the age of 27. Two years later, he earned a doctorate in theology. While he was working on his doctorate, he also helped establish the Sisters of the Child Jesus, and he acted as their confessor. Part of the work of this group of sisters was to care for and educate young girls, so Jean helped them when they started a school. He was inspired by their work, and he also began doing work with some of the boys and men from the rougher neighborhoods in the area. Most of these men were barely literate, so he made it his goal to start schools for the poor boys. And he devoted himself to this goal entirely. He moved out of his comfortable family home to live with the other teachers of the school that he helped start, and he also renounced his position as canon and all of his wealth. Oh, wow. 
because that was a pretty prestigious position that he had. Sure. Uh, when he gave up his wealth, the other teachers assumed it would be used to help fund the schools. Sure. But instead, he gave the vast majority of it to the poor in the form of bread during a famine. Okay. He insisted that the schools would have to rely on Providence to thrive. But he did keep an endowment to pay his own salary um, at a level that was about equal to what the other teachers were being paid. This was so that he would not be a burden on them. That makes sense. And smart. Yeah. Definitely forward thinking. Mm-hmm. And he formed a community that came to be known as the Brothers of the Christian Schools. This new community faced a lot of opposition from a couple different angles. Local religious leaders were against this new form of religious community because it was made up of consecrated lay people, Mm -hmm. uh, lay men, and they conducted schools together and by association. The education community opposed it because it used a lot of unorthodox methods in their teaching, and they also didn't like that they didn't make people pay. Ah. Despite this, the schools were very successful. They taught reading, writing, technical skills, and they also mixed religious and secular education. Cool. One of these unorthodox ideas that Jean had was separating students into different grades by age and ability. Interesting. Which, so that's where that comes in. Yeah, pretty clearly caught on. Yeah. <laughs> In addition to this network of schools across France, he also started teacher academies to train new teachers for the schools. And if that was not enough, he also founded one of the first institutions for the care of juvenile delinquents. Okay. Sean worked pretty tirelessly on these reforming projects for the rest of his life, all the while maintaining a simple, austere lifestyle. He died on Good Friday shortly before his 68th birthday. His legacy still lives on today in the form of schools that are still being run by the brothers of the Christian schools. And one of the students who went to a Christian brothers school, as they're sometimes called, was our friend Jim, who suggested Jean as the saint of the week. Adorable! Hi, Jim! So, thank you, Jim. (laughs) That's great. So, Shannon, what is Jean the patron of? It's got to be school teachers, right? It is. Good. <laughs> also, maybe juvenile delinquents was going to be my second guess. Not on the list. Okay. Uh, the list for Jean is educators, school principals, teachers, and brothers of the Christian schools. Sure. Cool. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, go tell a friend about it. Go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, write a review, drop us a rating. That way more people will find our show. If you want to follow us on Facebook, you can see our ever-changing liturgical calendar of cover photos, and that is at facebook.com slash school number four heathens. Our Twitter is also at school number four heathens. You can email us at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Adam Griffin for his music for the show. Thank you so much to David Griffin for the editing and for the logo. We'll see you soon, David. And that's it. Amen. Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm-hmm.